You're listening to Lab Notes, your weekly dose of inspiring innovation. Hello and welcome to Lab Notes. I'm your host, Leo Stevens, and today I'm excited to bring you an interview with a trailblazer of the Australian internet technology sector, Alan Jones. From a vantage point in PR and marketing in the early 90s, Alan was exposed to the tech sector in its formative years and quickly cottoned on to the potential of the internet to revolutionise the world around us. After creating one of Australia's first local area networks for his PR firm as part of a review for Macworld magazine, Alan found himself inexorably drawn into the fast-paced world of internet startups. As one of Yahoo's first employees in Australia, Alan witnessed the highs and lows of the tech bubble firsthand and has a truly incredible story to share about his employees' stock options during that wild ride. Since leaving Yahoo in 2003, Alan has started several startups of his own, advised dozens of others, and has recently become highly active as an angel investor and entrepreneur and resident at some of Australia's leading startup accelerators, including Startmate, Blue Chili, Pollinizer, MuruD, and Remarkable. Alan has a tremendous depth of knowledge about technology translation, entrepreneurship, and investment that I'm excited to share with you. We kick things off by asking Alan about where he grew up. I grew up a lot of places, actually. Yeah, right. uh, before I left home at 16 and nine months, I lived in 28 houses and one boat. And so I was actually born in Box Hill in Melbourne, but lived there only for long enough that my middle brother was born and then we were off again. Because I didn't appreciate it at the time and neither did he, but my father was actually an entrepreneur and didn't know it. You know, because he came from a working class English background. He was a 10 pound migrant to Australia. And all he knew was that he wanted to break free from English class system, from post-war rationing and reconstruction. He was trying to escape from all of that. And so the first time he actually tried to escape from that, he tried to migrate to New Zealand and, uh, and he wasn't yet old enough. So he got rejected because I, I think he was only 17 and he had to be, I think, perhaps 19 to have a crack at it. He didn't really understand, but he just wanted to get away. And part of what was driving him was the, the British class system that said that, well, you are the working class. Um, you don't get a chance to participate in the professions, you know. Um, and uh, he got a job as a semi-skilled uh, lab technician. And the guy who was running his, his lab got called out to join the CSIRO. And the CSIRO was massively short-staffed. And so my dad decided that he was going to write to this senior exec at the, at the newly formed CSIRO and say, hey, any chance you could offer me a job if I, if I qualify for this passage? And so the CSIRO guy said, look, I can't offer you a job, but I can offer you a place to stay. And my dad spun that to his, his parents and said, look, I've got an offer for a job in Australia. I'm going. And sadly, later on, his, one by one, his family followed him. <laughs> he was actually really looking forward to escaping his family, I think, as well as his, his circumstance. But yeah, that entrepreneur instinct in him was, was buried by the class system because, you know, even if you were middle class in the UK, if you were in the professions, if you were the doctor, say, you were the doctor for your village or for your town, you couldn't just go, well, I'm going to build a network of, of medical practices across the country. You can't be an entrepreneur. And I remember we're at a large family gathering one time and I'm at that age in a young boy's life where he's starting to try and understand what his uncles and aunt did, you know. And uh, I asked my dad what my uncle George did and my dad said to me, your uncle George's son is an entrepreneur. I don't know. 
what does that mean, Dad? I've never heard it before. And my dad said to me, it's a fancy French word that means he doesn't have a proper job. And so it took my father a very, very long time and several massive career pivots uh, to come to terms with the fact that once he had solved all the big interesting challenges of whatever he took on next, he couldn't stand it anymore and, and needed to go and do it something somewhere else. So we moved around a lot. So fortunately, uh, my parents decided that for my high school years, we should stay at least at the one school. And so my family kind of orbited around this one high school, yeah, which at the time was a really interesting mix of, of migrant uh, fruit farms and, and lettuce farms and things, and then a small number of hippie alternative left families trying to, you know, do a sort of bush change kind of change in their life, which is what my parents were trying to do at the time. Um, and, and the school then, was only open just kind of just before you got there. Was it being built around you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was. It was one of those brief Labor government moments of let's invest in education. Um, and so I was in the first full year through the through the school, and they were still making making it all up as they went along. And it was a really good thing when I finally did. Um, completed university degree was at what became the University of Western Sydney and, and similarly I was in the very first year to go all the way through the communications degree at Western mm. Sydney and it was a chance for us to actually collaborate and say this is what I think my, my skills are going to need to be please teach me that you know and to give real feedback and every now and again to hear an educator say you know what we don't actually know what we're doing I really appreciate the feedback keep it coming you know so anytime as entrepreneurs we get to build that kind of trusted relationship with our early customers and seek that real feedback from them. It's a, it's a magical flywheel for accelerated success. As a member of the first cohort to study communications at the University of Western Sydney, Alan really did help craft his own education, joining the student council, co-founding a student newspaper, and establishing the institution's first computer lab in the late 1980s. After graduating in 89 with a degree in applied communications, Alan was at first seduced by the corporate life, joining well-established Sydney PR firms including Hill and & Knowlton and Blackie McDonald as a graduate. I asked him to reflect on that experience. In those days, um, the content industries and, and the PR industries that fed them were very, very manual beasts and had to be operated you know, like a big steam age engine and the cogs in the wheel that made the stories come out were young graduates like myself. So we performed incredibly manual processes. When I first began at Hill and Knowlton, um, the Sydney office, which was the biggest office in Australia, had a typing pool. And they had these weird things that weren't yet computers but were a bit more electronic than typewriters. Um, so they were kind of networked, but only to the printer. And anyway, as a PR consultant working on a press release for a client, uh, you long handed out your draft press release and then you put it in the in tray of someone in the typing pool. And it could quite often sit there for, for as much as a day because other more senior PR consultants with bigger sway kept putting their draft press releases on top of yours. You know? So part of my frustration back then was how do I do my job of you know, if I can't even turn around one iteration of what the content ought to be, how do I respond in a timely fashion? Um, and then every now and again, there would be a weird opportunity to use that, I'm not from here and why do we do it this way kind of mentality to rock the boat a little bit. So I remember very clearly two instances happening there. I had discovered I was a bit of a nerd by this stage and I was freelancing for a, um, a, a magazine called Australian Macworld that focused on all the Apple and Mac fans out there. 
And, uh, and one of the things that they wanted, they wanted me to write some, some reviews. One of the things they wanted me to review was this early Mac um, networking software. And I thought, well, how do I, where do I find a network of Mac computers in Australia at this time? It was really new. Uh, and so I was dying to do it, dying to install it on a bunch of computers and see if I get it to work. Um, and one day the, the managing director at the time said, has anybody got any bright ideas about how we lay out, how to pump out press releases more quickly? I do. <laughs> we need a network of personal computers, and one of those personal computers on the desk of each PR consultant, because we'd all trained as journalists, right? So we all had pretty good typing speeds and low accuracy rates. Why were we paying this, you know, lovely set of human beings to do our typing for us when we're perfectly capable of doing it ourselves? So I said, I volunteer to go out and cost the whole thing, and blah blah blah, and. John Connolly fell in love with that idea. Helen Oldman was starting to focus a bit more on technology PR at the time, and he thought it'd be a good positioning for the for the agency. So I, I accidentally ended up as the as the network administrator of one of the first Mac networks in Australia, and it was awesome fun. We were a leading edge. After almost a decade working in PR, including a year at the helm of his own firm, Alan had finally had enough of watching the tech sector from the sidelines. In 1996, he handed over his last clients and threw his lot in with Microsoft as part of the ambitious Sidewalk project. I asked Alan what prompted him to bid farewell to a steady career in PR and dive into the tech sector. The entrepreneur bone in me ran out of patience with PR agencies that I was working with and through spending trying to understand my customer more, trying to understand what's actually going on in my ecosystem because that makes you a better PR consultant. I started to get sucked into their world and away from mine and I wasn't satisfied anymore with helping explain the development in the industry. I wanted to be part of it and I could see, you know, some of my clients were going from here to here and net worth in, in, in a matter of a couple of years and how does that happen? Like what's a what's an employee stock option and how does that work and what is an IPO, you know? Um, but yeah, so that was it. Sydney Sidewalk was kind of like Yelp. Yep. <laughs> but at a time in Australia where most of the businesses that you would want to find out about them had never used the internet before, didn't even have an email address, much less a website yep. for the business. And so the, the hugely ambitious Sidewalk plan was to launch Sidewalk in seven cities around the world almost simultaneously. But at the same time, go out and persuade all these small business owners that they needed to be on the internet, that the yellow pages were going to die. And that there was, you know, reviews and ratings and, and authentic customer content was going to be the next big thing way before its time. And, and, and the kind of scale of ambition that only something like a Microsoft could even attempt. Um, I ended up as kind of the, the producer trying to figure out how the hell we were going to create that content team such that um, we would be on top of all of the thousands of changes that are big urban city seas and the cool bars and nightclubs and but also not just the nightlife but also the day life as well we i actually personally went out and reviewed all of sydney's beaches <laughs> i still had that content today <laughs> actually it was pretty good i didn't have a whole lot of time to get it done and like like what are, what are we you know can we agree on what the parameters are like you know because we've all kind of got different reasons we go to the yeah. beach so it was a really interesting exercise in, in content data uh, but at the end of the day, you know, Microsoft really didn't yet get the web and, and, and that power of the web to be so much more powerful if you stop trying to portal it and put it behind your, your paywall and just instead made it kind of open and free. And so the internet community in Australia was very tiny and a friend of a friend knew that Yahoo was trying to launch 
and they needed a content guy and I was a content guy and Yahoo was all about open and free and Yahoo was such a, a new company back then that Jerry Yang, the CEO of Yahoo, came out to speak at a conference in Melbourne while I was still doing a bit of PR consulting. And uh, Jerry Yang had never been across the international dateline before. And so I accidentally arrived in Australia a day later than he expected to. And he said, Look, I'm really sorry that happened. Uh, maybe I could keynote day two instead of day one and push my senior vice president off. You know, and Melbourne at that time was the arse end of the world if you were from San Francisco, you know. And so he had come all the way up from San Francisco and then suddenly no keynote. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Do you not have any sway in this industry? So that was my first experience of Yahoo. But Jerry was just a genuinely humble, young, super bright, super motivated, incredibly hardworking guy. Probably with the first few thousand employees at Yahoo felt like they genuinely knew and understood Jerry Yang as a, as a friend and, a, and a, a peer and a co-worker, not just as a CEO. Incredibly accomplished guy. Yeah, amazing. And look, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times for Yahoo. I wanted to know how that, that felt from the inside to see the business that you work for, that you know, your financial future depended on, go through such wild and volatile changes. And how, what did that teach you about valuation? Oh man, it taught me a lot. You know? So. First of all, I suffer from dyscalculia. I'm, I'm really bad with numbers. Hmm. So someone with, with dyslexia, letters jumble around in, in their mind. For me, many digits jumble around in my mind, particularly fives and sevens, sixes and nines. Um, and I kind of rushed into a compensation conversation with the Yahoo um, recruiting team and took a quick glance at the Yahoo stock price before I went in. But my dyscalculia got in the way and, and they said, so we're thinking about offering this much compensation and this many stock options. And I'm like, oh, geez, this was going really well up to this point. I'm so sorry. I think, you know, I think I've been wasting your time over the past three years. I don't think this, this can work. I think we're so far apart on this. Really? Is that all? And, then, and they said, oh, it's terrible. But look, you know, like you're the first actual person that, we've, that we're offering employment to in Australia. Maybe we've got it wrong. Uh, we don't have the authority to make that big a change here, but we'll go away and talk to our other people, you know? So they came back uh, and they said, okay, damn it, we'll do it, you know? Um, and I forgot about it. And then, you know, going on for 11 months later, I get the FedEx parcel in the mail, you know, with some formal documentation saying, mm -hmm. hey, you know, it's, it's, it's coming up, your first tranche of stock options are gonna vest. Um, and, uh, and that means it's this much money. And I went, well, just calculate because that looked like a million dollars there for a second. <laughs> shit, it still was like a million dollars. And I got my girlfriend at the time, now wife, to sit down with me on, on, on our bed in our little rented flat and said, babe, does this make sense to you? And she went, you're kidding me. <laughs> Keeping in mind at that time that Melissa and I, you know, I had, I had a, a, a leased car and $20,000 worth of credit debt and, uh, and nothing. <laughs> so I went to the, um, the stockbroking firm that Yahoo used, you know, and I spoke to some broker guy and I said, my name's Alan Jones, he's my account number, I'd like to sell, you know, exercise and sell this many stock options in Yahoo. Maybe three or four o'clock in the morning, um, he calls back my home number because it's the only number he has because yeah. nobody had mobile phones. Um, Thinking it's business hours. <laughs> well, I don't know what he thought, it's probably the first time he called a client in Australia. Um, but he leaves a message on our home answering machine. Uh, so I get up in the morning and, you know, it all seemed like a fever dream and I'd forgotten about it and there's a message like flashing on the answering machine. Oh, that's interesting. I'm pretty sure I cleared those last night. Hit play. Uh, Mr. Jones here. It's uh, Joe Patrick from Bear Stearns. Just wanted to let you know, confirming proceeds will be uh, in, in your nominated account in, you know, in five or seven days or something. 
no, that's never going to happen. <laughs> and then I got a call like five days later from my local central bank branch manager. Oh, Mr. Jones, um, you know, <laughs> we've got an inbound <laughs> transfer in US dollars for like, you know, a little bit over a million dollars. And I went to my local bank branch, walk in, you know, there's three tellers and some spotty 19 year old kid yeah. and, and said, uh, you know, could you print out my, my account statement for me? And he, and he said, print, 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 board, looked at my, fuck, <laughs> double take, it looks at me, looks at it, looks at me again. And I just went, I oh, know. <laughs> so I handed it over and I went straight to quick copy and I, you know, like I didn't, I didn't have time for fancy things, but I just laminated it, wow. you know, laminated. Oh, I just wanted to like preserve that moment forever and ever. Another lesson from that? Sure, please. Yeah, the irrational markets. Yes, yes. Yeah, that's where right. we started. Yeah. So when I had a million dollars, another guy who had a million dollars said, look, you probably need a, a financial advisor. And I still got that financial advisor today. Paul Manker is a good human being. And very first thing he taught me, we got up on the whiteboard and he drew a graph and, and he put a diagonal line across it. And he said, I want to explain to you how the stock market works because you are now way too much asset allocation in, in, yeah. in the public markets. So this is how the stock market works. And he put fear on one side of that line and greed on the other. And he said, the entire market is in the process of flipping from fear to greed, mostly at the same time. And your major risk is that all of them will decide to flip from greed to fear. And I saw that happen with the dot-com mm. crash with my own fucking money, which was scary as hell. One day there's Yahoo, the darling of the stock market, uh, had been profitable from IPO, had increased earnings per share quarter after quarter after quarter, was the first of the tech startup generation um, uh, and NASDAQ companies to have in excess of a billion dollars cash just sitting idle for acquisitions and things. And so, we, yeah, we were a stock market darling. We were the poster child of the new generation. And from one day to the next, suddenly, like, bang, probably on day one, probably wrote off 20, 30% of the market cap of Yahoo for no reason other than the herd had all decided that it was all about fear now and no longer about greed. Okay, so after Yahoo and now with a bit more financial clout behind you, thanks to the, the stock option vesting and probably what looks like a genius sell maneuver in hindsight, <laughs> um, you began a period of serial entrepreneurship. It wasn't always smooth sailing, but I'm interested to delve into those experiences and what you learned from starting companies yourself. Yeah, look, it was mostly rough sailing. Um, all of us, all of us, come away from a successful startup founder experience, thinking thinking we know what we're doing. Because maybe another thing to take away from from my career is I really do believe that that luck um, is the single biggest variable in the equation that determines my financial uh, tides. Mm. You know, because you know it's it's not been upward and to the right kind of graph. It's been much more like the ocean tides, but with no moon, you know, like it's just like- It's random. <laughs> it's random, you know? You know, whatever my latest get rich quick scheme, that never works out no matter how certain I am. But then there'll be these random things that I had, you know, never really entirely believed in, but just took a gamble on and well, damn, you know, that worked out, okay. So then you've got to learn the hard way that um, a sample size of one um, is not a valid sample. And, and also that in, in tech startups um, and in, in innovation in general, knowledge uh, has a very short shelf life. It really only lasts three years and, and it's entirely worthless in five because everything changes in the meantime. You know, so the, so the way that we built products, the way that we distribute them, the way that we market them to consumers, the way that consumers and businesses behave, the messages they respond to, everything changes mm. entirely every five years uh, and, and it takes five years 
to push a good startup out and, and, and get out of it. You know, you're lucky if you can do it in five, you're doing well if you do it in 10. And so you really can't go, well, I've been a successful startup. You know, every time you go and do it again, you've, you've got to learn to start from scratch and go, actually, the first step I have to do is accept that nothing, nothing I believe I know has any currency anymore, and I have to go back and begin my customer research again and study this new market that I want to enter. Yeah, and I guess you eventually found your way into what I might harshly call your true calling, um, which is to be as an investor, an angel, and a mentor to a, a really growing ecosystem. You started with Startmate and even TEDx Sydney, now through Blue Chili, Remarkable. You're kind of the the go-to guy for entrepreneurs and accelerators looking for advice. What, what was that transition like for you? Well, I aspire to be that person. Um, if, if, if I'm making progress, that's awesome. I think I still have a lot of work to do. You know, I love having coffee and meeting new people and, and giving them some advice and then hopefully one day they come back to me and say that they took it and it worked. Like, that's really validating. Um, but it doesn't power whatever it is that I want to do next. You know? So one of the challenges for me, if, if I'm aging out as a startup founder or if, you know, I just want to take 10 years out from that but continue to, to progress, what do I do? How do I contribute? You just can't do that many coffees in a day or a week or a month or a year. Um, and I thought... Well, perhaps I can use that experience to be an angel investor. Uh, so it took some courage to risk some of the money that I was prepared to invest in my own startup ventures and instead invest in somebody else's. One thing that I thought would be a smart idea, and if anybody out there is considering experimenting with angel investing, I think this is still really valuable advice, is, is to see how close you can get to other angel investors and just stalk them, follow them, learn what they do, see if you can find a way to be part of their conversations and- Be a fly on their wall. Interview them, yeah, interview them about their methodology and their investment hypothesis. Um, I thought, you know, where do angel investors collect? And unfortunately, especially in those days, they don't, you know, they don't assemble. Yeah. They like to remain under the radar. Um, and so Accelerator Programs was kind of really the first time in the world where, where angel investors might congregate and they were there you know, to feed at the watering hole of deal flow that might start coming out of, an, of a successful accelerator. And part of the, the obligation in return was to, to give some advice to the founders in the programs. You know? And you wanted to do that so that maybe you got some good deal flow at the end of it anyway. And what I learned was actually I loved working with the startups as a coach as much as or more than I do earning a return on investing in them. Um, and the two kind of work together really well. Um, one of the, you know, you've got to build trust in any relationship with somebody and trust is really hard when, you know, you've got all this IP and asset and team and stuff and you can, you can only offer that one share to an investor one time. And so you're trying to pick the best possible investor and you know the investor's trying to sell you if they're interested on, on them being the one. And so there's a lot of skepticism and a lack of trust. On the investor side, the same is also true. You know that the startup founder is putting some spin. You don't know how much spin is there. You're trying to find out what's really going under the hood. But of course, they're under no obligation to share that with you. And you're worried that you might have competitors trying to edge you out of the deal. So trust is the big missing piece there. One awesome way, it turns out, to build trust with startup founders is before they're ready for investment, yeah. just to build a, some sort of coaching, mentoring, trusted relationship with them and have them have an opportunity to try out some of your recommendations and see if it works for them. So that that's kind of my model now as, as an angel investor and an aspiring VC is to still spend most of my time 
coaching folks in the hope that that we learn to trust each other so that when they're ready for capital i can i can hop in and pick the best ones having worked across so many facets of australia's technology sector alan has seen a wide range of founders and projects yet the scientist come entrepreneur is still a rare sight so I asked Alan what his view was on the way scientists and academia interact with the startup ecosystem. I think you know anybody from a science or an engineering background has a passion for solving meaningful problems. But you know, the same things that make universities awesome places to do research, tenure, safety, trust, isolation from the commercial world, all those sorts of things can sometimes build up a frustration. But I think there's a, there's a little bit of entrepreneur in everybody, and perhaps that latent entrepreneur gene get, starts getting expressed. But yeah, at the end of the day, that's the opportunity for, for researchers and for scientists, and, and it's an opportunity to get out from behind the constraints of a double-blind study where you, know, you observe all these anonymous data points um, and actually you know, roll up your sleeves and actually get in front of customers and get what you deserve, which is you know, like real joy and surprise and, you know, excitement about what they'll be able to achieve with this thing that you've created for them. And for getting that beautiful feedback from a customer that says, you've changed my life. I can't express to you how much this means to me. I've, I've recently become a ResMed customer, you know, I'm 55. And, uh, and that has changed my life. I'm so much more full of, of energy. That's a beautiful piece of software and hardware engineering. Really impressive what they've done. You know, I work with this accelerator program this year called Remarkable, um, backed by Cerebral Palsy Australia. Um, the ideal team in, in Remarkable is one co-founder who has lived experience of, of the problem of disability and inclusion. Now that might be age-related, it might be impairment-related, such as cerebral palsy, it could be cognitive diversity, it could be somebody who's vision-impaired or so on perfect founder in the Remarkable program has that lived experience of the problem where they are the sufferer or where a close family member is the sufferer. Or and you know those people, they're not in it for the billion dollar return, they're in it to solve the problem. Exactly, exactly. So an awesome startup, Loop Plus, just announced an awesome Series A round the other day and that's a perfect example. Co-founder with a family member in a wheelchair and Loop Plus solves a really, really critical problem in that space that nobody had ever considered solving with technology. Mm -hmm. The amazing thing about solving problems in disability and inclusion in Australia is that it's, it's actually one of the rare instances of a, of a market in Australia where there's a huge opportunity for tech startups because we have this NDIS scheme, which from a tech startup perspective means that the taxpayer is going to pay your customer to pay for your product or service that you deliver as a startup. Yeah. You know, if you've got something that makes people who have a reading disability cope better with their problem, the NDIS is actually going to pay that family to pay your startup to mm -hmm. use that product. You know? It's a lot more ability to pay for, for meaningful solutions. Totally, totally. And then you as a, as a startup founder get to, to see firsthand and hear firsthand from those customers how you've changed their lives and made them a more productive, more fulfilled member of a society. It's such a great program. As both an entrepreneur and an investor, Alan has encountered just about every stage in the startup life cycle, from pre-revenue minimum viable products through to seed rounds, venture capital backing, and IPOs. Before we parted ways, I asked Alan if he could break down the stages of funding, and 
what entrepreneurs can expect to encounter as they progress through the investment pipeline. Yeah, when I talk about raising investment for a startup, I usually prefer to begin earlier than most founders anticipate. So I like to remind founders to remember the investment that they're making in their own startup and to account for that. Unfortunately, for most startups in Australia, the, the first um, investment your startup is going to receive is your own money and perhaps that of friends and family. We call that a friends and family round. The reason why those people might be prepared to invest in a business which is still more idea than actual business is that hopefully they'll be making that investment decision based on who they understand you to be. Having seen you in other professions or other industries, having perhaps grown up with you, they're going to feel like they have a better understanding of who you are as a person and what you're capable of and what you're not capable of. Unfortunately for a professional investor, it's not really responsible for us to make that same call after a couple of coffee meetings with you. Most professional investors who've been successful tend to want to focus on evaluating business once it's achieved something of value. And that something of value might be to build um, a uniquely interesting prototype, a minimum viable product, improve that the business is solving a valuable problem for a customer. It might be when the team that you've assembled around the startup is truly world-class and one of the rarest commodities in Australian tech startup ecosystem is people who actually have hands-on experience of building successful tech startups previously. So that's what I really mean by, by world-class. Um, and then the, the third potential way to have something that, that might be valuable might be if you've got some truly unique, truly valuable intellectual property. And that's perhaps the rarest gem of all. That's the hardest thing to find in the Australian ecosystem because that usually involves some kind of deep tech, something arising from research. It's rare that truly great advances actually do happen in people's garages anymore. Mostly they happen in laboratories. In Australia, most of those laboratories are in universities and universities often own all or some of that intellectual property, which can limit its application in the commercial world. But those are really the, the ways to start thinking about raising money. If I'm going to grow this business by using other people's money, then I need to first create something that they can value and they can decide along with me how much of that value that they want to hold and how much they might be prepared to pay for that. Now, that's not to say that every startup should raise venture capital. There are a number of different ways really to grow a business, but one way is what we call bootstrapping, where we take some of or all of the revenue that the business has generated and we apply that to further growth in terms of more spend on sales, more spend on marketing, more spend on great people, more spend on technologies that we need. Um, so that's bootstrapping. Um, and, and that kind of growth of a business, really everything hangs on the growth and revenue. If revenue in the business isn't growing, then bootstrapping is a very long and laborious and slow process. The other way is to use other people's money, is to raise money from investors. And when we go down that path, we're able to get out of that revenue loop for a while and say, here's a big windfall of money that we've been able to take from an investor. And now we can go and achieve a number of things at once that we wouldn't have otherwise been able to afford. And what we see again and again in generations of tech startups is sometimes the startups that raise money from external investors are able to apply that big chunk of money to grow the business much more quickly than they might have been able to do if they bootstrapped. And that's how we see companies 
enter multiple geographies at once or develop a product range rather than a single product or perhaps just dominate a particular niche. The kinds of investors in the stage of investment when we're borrowing other people's money to grow our business vary from market to market and from time to time. But currently in Australia, typically there are a few different kinds of investors. There are institutional investors and there are private investors. So institutional investors are just essentially people who are managing capital on behalf of other people or institutions. Um, so those other institutions might be individual investors um, or they might be um, fund managers themselves or they might be pension funds or they might be banks or they might be sovereign wealth funds. But basically the people managing that money are the people that we deal with. And so we call those institutional investors in Australia, because we shorten everything, we call them instos, right? A particular category of insto is a venture capitalist. And venture capital exists at managing a kind of money that is applied to trying to achieve a very high rate of return while accepting a very high degree of risk. And so that's why venture capital plays such a role in the tech startup industry, because there is a lot of potential for, for high returns in a relatively short period of time, but it comes with a tremendous amount of risk. Australia doesn't have very many venture capital funds or venture capital fund managers, particularly when you slice and dice that ecosystem up into the stages of investment that they focus on, the industries that they focus on, and their particular investment hypothesis. So an investment hypothesis is, is useful to understand. Um, and that's just a fancy way of saying, well, this is what we're going to try and invest in, and this is what we like to invest in, and this is what we don't like to invest in, and this is why. That's an investment hypothesis. Anybody who's managing other people's capital in order to make investments on their behalf needs to have an explicit investment hypothesis, which is you know kind of written down and is used in marketing materials so that all of those investors in that fund understand how their money is going to be applied to the market. That's probably a good spot to jump in because... I wanted to ask you a bit about your own investment hypothesis. I know you're in the process of transitioning yourself from an individual angel investor towards the VC space with a new fund called M8 Ventures. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, after about 10 years of angel investing myself with some solid returns on paper, I wanted to step up and I was frustrated by my own lack of capital resources. I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty small angel investor. I'm, I'm using money that I've mostly earned in jobs rather than achieved by selling businesses. And so when I see great deals and great companies that need capital and I can't participate, that frustrates me. So I'm the kind of investor that has great deal flow and not enough capital to service that great deal flow. So uh, for a few years now, I've, I've been figuring out how to fit into the investment ecosystem in Australia and collaborating with a few other people on how to make that happen. And what we see when we look at, at other markets, particularly in Silicon Valley, is there's a, there's a class of early stage VC that is managed by people from a product or an engineering background. Because in the early days of many tech startups, really the main thing of significant value in the business is actually the technology and the people building it. And so that early stage of, of venture capital, that seed stage of venture capital, it's quite common to have engineers and product managers and, and people from that background involved. And that coincidentally happens to be in my own background. And most of the startups I've been a part of, I've seen that angel seed stage series A uh, cycle of investment again and again from both sides of the table as an investor and also as a startup founder. So I feel like that's my area of competency. Nobody's going to back a venture capital fund, which is just one person, because 
a fund needs to last for about 10 years and what happens to the investor's money if that one person gets hit by a bus, right? So we need to have a fund which is managed by multiple people. And uh, after a journey, after some time, I think we've arrived at a partner structure that is going to really work in the market. One of the people joining us as a partner in M8 Ventures is Emily Rich. She's a, a CTO, a technical co-founder herself with a background in machine learning and AI. And she's, she's very well respected in that space in Australia. And she uh, works at Microsoft, running Microsoft's Reactor program. So the two of us make a formidable team when it comes to doing due diligence on the excellence of the product being built and also whether or not the team building that product are world-class. Obviously, you need to still commercialize that product and, and we have experience in that area as, as well. But we think what makes us unique and different is that ability to read the product. Um, there are surprisingly few people in tech venture capital in Australia with uh, any kind of qualifications or experience in building products. And I've heard you say previously that M8 Ventures is so named because it spells out the word mate and speaks to the kind of relationship you want to have with your founders. I wanted to ask you a bit about what you view as the role of an angel and as an investor in looking after the, the health and wellness of founders as they undertake this journey. Yeah, there's an infinite number of ways to do venture capital. And um it's got to be informed by the nature of the people managing the fund and, and who they are and what they want to achieve because trying to make people do something that they're not, not well suited to just isn't sustainable in the long term. And and I am a bit of a, a human person. I highly value relationships and I spend a bunch of my time mentoring startup founders and accelerator programs, partly because it's a living, but mainly because it's a calling. And uh, and I really value the relationships that I build and the time that I get to spend getting to know people and, and trying to help them solve some of the challenges that they face. So I would be fighting my own nature if I were to say, look, this is just about investing in companies and I don't care what happens to the people as long as I get my return. That wouldn't be true to who I am. So the alternative, I think, to that is to establish a relatively small venture fund with a relatively small portfolio, including companies that you're able to maintain a high touch relationship with. And mateship in Australia kind of has a double edge. You know, there's mateship, which is used to actually avoid openness and transparency and honesty, where we both pretend that we're mates, but really that means we both have permission not really to get to know each other. But then there's another kind of mateship, which I think is the true and the original form of mateship in Australia, where you choose not to let your mate down and where you you, you and your mate know that you're each there for each other through thick and thin. And I hope that some of the founders of some of the startups that I've invested in as an angel investor would, would say that about me, that I'm there to support them in the good times and bad. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm always going to have the answers by any means, but... I might be able to pull together the resources and the reading. Um, I might be able to make the contacts and I might just be able to help them work through the problem from a different angle and see if I can help. That's a wonderful sentiment, Alan, and I'm sure your founders appreciate it. Before we go, I just ask one standard question, which is, do you have any book recommendations for the audience? Yeah, absolutely. In my mentoring work, I spend a lot of time with um, people from a technology background, helping them understand that building a tech startup is much, much less about building technology products and much, much more about sales and marketing. And sales and marketing are two fields that re rely upon our um, understanding of the irrational way that people behave. You know, Classical economics is all about understanding how large groups of people behave in, in rational ways, how, how markets uh, respond according to stimulus. There's, there's a subset of 
classical economics called behavioral economics, which I'm a huge fan of, which studies how and why people respond to irrational stimuluses. And that's basically how sales and marketing works. One of my favorite authors in that field is an academic called Dan Ariely, who is very, very accessible online. Uh, he podcasts, he blogs, he writes some amazing books. And uh, his first and still my favorite book is something called Predictably Irrational. I highly recommend it if, if you're wondering why you can't persuade customers to buy the awesome product that you're building. Well, thank you, Alan Jones. It's been an amazing and insightful chat. Thanks a lot, Leo. I really enjoyed it. Well, that's all we can fit into Lab Notes for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. If you're keen to hear more inspiring stories of innovation, check out our back catalogue and subscribe to the channel so new episodes can appear on your device once a week. Lab Notes is produced by Eon Labs in collaboration with Rennie Digital. You can find links to both of those organisations, along with our guest's biography, the papers we discuss, and more in the description below. Our music is sourced from Apple Planet Music and mixed by Nat Harris. I'm your host, Dr. Leo Stevens. Until next week, keep inventing.